We say good morning on this Resurrection Day. Boy, is it a great time to be uh, rejoicing in that. What an incredible day that must have been when Christ did actually rise from the dead. Our faith is anchored on that. So we celebrate another Resurrection Day. Uh, we've, at this church, we've probably done this at least 25 times every year uh, as far as a, a resurrection message. And the challenge to me is, is to be able to find a text or a theme that doesn't exactly repeat what I've done before. <laughs> when you're dealing with a resurrection, there are a lot of different verses, but it's, it all comes down to that one meaning, doesn't it? And that's, ultimately, it means he rose guarantees life for us eternally. And all the religions, they're, they're all looking for that. How can they get eternal life? But we know for sure uh, how that is. Uh, so anyway, in the past I've done evidences of uh, the resurrection. We've done harmonies of the resurrections and put all those together. Uh, you know, the death and the burial and the resurrection. Uh, we've done the atonement, uh, substitution, uh, the prophecies. How about the seven last sayings of Christ on the cross, right? So we've done all those and, and probably repeated them many times. And a lot of times whenever I get away from a book study, I feel kind of lost throughout the week because I'm trying to think, okay, what can I do? Well, I knew what the message was going to be about. You know, that's obvious, right? Death and the resurrection of Christ. But what am I going to do? What can I do to be a little bit different than uh, what I've been before? Well, I won't be really that much different because it's the same old story. But I couldn't come up with it till it was all the way till Friday. It was like, what am I going to do? And it was like Friday night, and I finally said, "Oh, thank you, Lord. This is where we're going to be at." Okay. The best story that can be, isn't it? You can't. You can say it over and over and go all through all the same verses. We need to hear it. So I'm not trying to be original. I'm just thankful and privileged to be able to bring the heart of the gospel, the resurrection, to the forefront, because. A lot of times today, uh, it, it is not to the forefront. And there are people that can say actually that well, the resurrection is important to me, but it doesn't have to be. Not all Christians have to believe in it. I've heard people say that, folks. I'm not kidding. From missionaries, I've even heard that. It blew my mind whenever I heard that. That cannot be. Um, this is such an important doctrine. Christianity without it would be absolutely nothing. We would have no substance. We would be on fluff. That would uh, be nothing that's lasting. Did you know that people are celebrating Easter all over the world today? All over the world. Everywhere. Different ways. Some of them are really strange. You want to hear a few of them? In Belgium, people are busily hiding their loved one's shoes and then they demand uh, uh, witty forfeits for the return. The Bavarians will be chasing each other around a pole. Uh, in Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia, there will be young people that will slosh water on village girls. Uh, in Austria, people will cut brushwood and encourage the revelers to whack each other on the shoulders to wish them good luck. In Ireland, it will be the day of the biggest horse race of the year with the most money bet. Outside the cathedral in Florence, Italy, and the people will set ablaze an ox cart full of fireworks. Wow. Scandinavians will bring out their special seasonal Easter beer. In Rio, the hangovers, hangovers from Carnival are beginning to, at last, to kind of clear their heads. And in America, people will eat chocolate rabbits, candy, and eggs, and wear their spring clothes, and play with their kids and grandkids. 
and go to our family reunions, right? That's the way it is with Easter around the world. It's bewildering sometimes, a mixture of ancient faith, folklore, mysticism. Easter is a kind of a syncretism of a Jewish Passover with the Christian truths and then all the pagan rites of fertility and spring and everything that's going on there. Matter of fact, the word Easter, you'll notice I say Resurrection Day. Easter is really not a Christian term at all. Uh, it's the name of the ancient Anglo-Saxon word. goes way back to ancient English. But it was a, a goddess of light, Esther, E-S-T-R-E. And uh, there was also Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess. Uh, in fact, this actually predates Christianity. And uh, when you think about it, the resurrection of Christ really was one of those that, as far as those rituals are concerned, uh, Johnny come lately. <laughs> it just kind of added the resurrection to all those other rituals. And uh, so you had the worship of the Son, and then you had the worship of the S-O-N, Son, Jesus Christ, the gods of fertility. And matter of fact, the Easter egg came from that. You wonder where that came from. And the egg is both in ancient times a symbol of fertility, egg, right? And a symbol of the Son, so uh, those are some of the things. Uh, just to, to bring about something that's a little more modern, in Germany there was a poor woman living in a time of famine and uh, she had managed to get some of her eggs. She found some eggs. They were hungry, her and her kids. And uh, she found some and she wanted to make it special for that time of Easter. And as the children discovered them in a bush, at the same moment, a rabbit jumped out of that bush. And ever since, it changed. That legend that the rabbit had brought the eggs to feed the hungry children and the famine stuck. And so you have the Easter Bunny today here uh, all over the world, especially in America. The Easter Bunny was born out of, out of that. So goes the mishmash of Easter. Rabbits and eggs and hats and dresses and new suits and fertility rites and spring celebrations and pagan festivals, special beer, new clothes, horse races, throwing water on each other, whacking people with shrubs and on and on. And somewhere in the middle of all that, Jesus rose from the dead (laughs) as they add that along there. With all that, let's go on to that, that subject that is so key to our Christian faith. First fruits. You can actually call this day first fruits. Our church started calling that a long time ago because Jesus, we know, is associated with being the Passover lamb. He was killed on Passover. And then He arose on the day that would be called the first fruits. You've had unleavened bread, you've had Passover, and first fruits, which would be the first day of the week after that Passover. Uh, he is the first fruits. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15, that uh, resurrection chapter. Because there are more fruit to come. And who is the more fruit? Us. Jesus Christ being the first fruit. He was a guarantee. So we're going to be in Acts 2 today. We're going to look at Peter's masterpiece sermon. This is the first sermon of the history of the church. As far as the Holy Spirit coming and starting something uh, new here. Fifty days after Passover, you have Pentecost. Peter makes a great declaration, and it's about that resurrection of Christ. It's about the time of uh, you know the, the, the message of his, uh, his arrest, his death, burial, resurrection. He didn't seem like a very good follower, Peter didn't sometimes. And you remember that he uh, was giving up the fact that he even knew the Lord. Do you remember that? He denied the Lord. And here we have him preaching this great message. You can say, well, what changed Peter? The resurrection of Christ. If that 
was really true, and it was. It made a huge impact not only on Peter, but the rest of the apostles and people that were living at that time because they knew him and they had seen him before. They knew he died and then they saw him after that. And there were people, 500 that uh, had met at one time. How do we account for all this? Well, Peter went from cowardice, from being a coward, to being a man of courage, preaching a message that most people are wondering what is going on. And so he proclaims in the streets that Jesus is alive from the dead. Amen? Let's stand. Let's read Acts 2, starting at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will give and live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. That Jesus, God, raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And as we approach this truth of the resurrection, may it be alive in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, Amen. First thing we're going to look at is the historicity. The historicity of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection. It really happened, folks. 
it actually really happened. We're not just reading a fairy tale story or something. That's really nice. I wonder if it really did happen. No, this absolutely happened and you can bank on it. And if you can't bank on it, then give it up. Don't even open your Bibles anymore and go and do whatever you want to do. The resurrection is the very hinge of Christianity. It's the most important. If it's not there, it does not prove that Christ was really who He said He was and He was a liar. Right? Um, he says, men of Israel, he's addressing the Jews there. They, and they know Scripture and he's going to quote Scripture. Listen to these words. Check this out. Check, examine this. Look at this. I've got something for you. Can you imagine? He had to be excited. And he had to be yelling because there were actually hundreds and hundreds of people there that day. There's thousands in the street. This is something worth listening to, isn't it? Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. Listen to these words. Examine it. He was real. Not only to Him, but the disciples and all other people who had known who He was. He was really real. There were many Jesuses at that time. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. A lot of Jesus running around. Yahashua's. Yeshua's. Common name. It's just like Joshua. But he's the Nazarene. This is the one who's real, who existed, who was a Nazarene. This guy's the, the carpenter. And he says, Peter says, a man. So he starts off with, here's a man. Hey, he's not a phantom. He's not some kind of a spirit. He was a real man. He was really here. You know about that. He was here. He's not a theory. It's just not a theory. And uh, if you if you take uh, Mohammedism, which is the Muslim faith, it's really not about the person Mohammed, even though he's a prophet, considered to be a great prophet by them. But uh, this is what he came up with. This is his idea. Confucius, and uh, another idea. You don't have to have those guys resurrected. You can think of Buddha. You know. Uh, there was Buddha, but actually Buddhism Buddhism really doesn't need Buddha. Buddha doesn't need Buddhism. <laughs> Muslims don't need Muhammad. Confucianism doesn't need Confucius. But Christianity needs Jesus Christ. Christianity needs Jesus Christ alive and well. In our hearts He lives. And He's attested to you by God. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. He proved that He was who He said He was. God proved it. He attested it. That word there means to refer to someone who is put in a very high position, who is put in a position of office. That's what God the Father did. He put Christ in a high office. And He affirmed to everybody that He was the Messiah. How did He do it? Right here. Miracles and wonders and signs. Things that were supernatural, that went beyond any kind of naturalism. And that's what atheists are all about. It has to be by nature, natural. Anything supernatural is ruled out. And He said, He performed these. Did He do it in the dark? Did He do it in some corner? where there was only one or two people around. No, He did it in front of thousands of people at a time. He fed the 5,000. People said it was probably at least 15,000, maybe 20,000 present there with women, kids, you know, the children and such. Uh, we know that there were signs, wonders, and miracles. The Pharisees even knew that. 
only problem is they couldn't attribute it to, to, to being the Son of God. They said, well, okay, that was a supernatural thing, but that had to come from Satan, right? Um, so everybody knew that he did those signs and wonders and miracles. And there are so many, John says that we can't even count them. We can't even mention them all. <laughs> it's incredible. This is a supernatural man uh, who is God. You could not have not heard about his miracles. And chances are, you could not have not have heard about that resurrection, or if you're doubting, the so-called resurrection. It was news everywhere. It was all over the place. And then he says in verse 23, this man, he mentions that again, delivered over by the predetermined plan. Oh, by the way, right at the end of verse 22, just as you yourselves know. You guys know about those signs and miracles and wonders. And by the way, most of you know that there was a story about him coming to life after death. The greatest miracle, right? He says, as you yourselves know. You know this. He's getting to a point. And he's going to use Scripture on them and then it's, it's going to come to a point of what are they going to do with that, that information. So there were, and these people were eyewitnesses. A lot of the people that he's talking to right here were the executioners even. Possibly. People were that responsible for that. You know who I'm talking about, Jesus says. You ever heard of that? You know exactly who I'm talking about. Makes it very clear. He says, um, as we say, predetermined plan and foreknowledge. We've covered that many times. That was God's plan before mankind was ever even here. Before there was ever even creation. God had already predetermined this. He already foreknew this. He predestined this is the idea. He drew the line, the boundary. This is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be long before it ever happened. It wasn't that God said, oh no, what am I going to do now? They're going to arrest Him and they might kill Him. That was part of the plan. God is the one. God the Father is the one who killed Him for us. But the Jews killed Him as they brought Him up. The Romans killed him as they literally were the ones who crucified him. And we killed him because our sin was upon him. Otherwise, our sin is never taken away. So, do you see? It's God and evil man that has killed Christ. It's for our benefit predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God you nail to a cross by the hands of godless men and putting to death. Nevertheless, no matter what, it's God's plan. They are held responsible, each and every one who had something to do with killing Him. Godless men putting to death. They're held responsible because they chose to do that still yet, even though it's God's plan. Isn't that incredible? And you go, how can you make that out? Well, don't dig into it too deep, folks. You just have to believe it. Because God's mind is far above ours. But you can say, yeah, it was His plan. And yet He still used men. He used Judas and, and all that. But at the same time, Satan is the one that entered Judas. Judas is the one who chose to do what he did. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The agony of death. This is where it really stings. 
If only we could feel a little bit of that. And we do. We have suffering in this life. We have pain. We have physical pain. Some of that suffering, you could say, well, this is part of the life that God is using for me to draw closer to Him. The pain that He went through is something we will never imagine. The physical pain. I was watching um, that um, movie, The Passion, last night. I just happened to be going through some channels just to see what kind of movies were going on. The Ten Commandments were on and other things. It's amazing. At this time of the year, secular TV starts bringing on some of the, you know, some of the movies. Some of the pretty great movies. Now, The Passion... I think it was an incredible movie, uh, very well done. There's a lot of things in there, a lot of facts. There are some things that still didn't get quite right, but I still have to say it was well done on his punishment, but it still is going to fall so far short of what really happened. And I saw them take that cat of nine tails after they had just beat him and beat him and beat him. If you've seen the movie, you go, oh, you, you actually start almost feeling it. I mean, you see the blood and, and the skin just being jerked off as, as it's like, a, like hooks, nails and what have you go into his flesh and then they rip it out and you see skin and you see the bruises and then you don't even see skin anymore. You see nothing but blood. A bloody mess all over his face. You couldn't even recognize who this man was. I'm sure the reality of it all was worse than, than the way that it was put in the movie. And a lot of other movies have put it very lightly. We can't imagine what happened to him. That's just the physical suffering. But then as I thought about it, I'm going, oh my, I can't imagine anything worse than that. And then you start thinking, oh my sin. Oh my sin went on him when he was at the cross. Whenever the darkness happened, the black of the day was there and my sin was on him. That has to be even more painful than all that physical flesh suffering that he went through. Boy, folks, we go through some pretty hard suffering. I know some of you really battle with some real physical struggles. And I don't make light of that at all. And what I say is, you can use that. You can use that as saying, you know, okay, if this is part of the suffering, you know, I want to get done whatever can be done. You know, if it can heal back up and such, that's great. You know, we pray to the Lord for that. But if you still have something that's there, you can use that to glorify God because the suffering of the church is still yet to be done. Paul said, My sufferings are for the, the, the suffering of Christ. Christ's body is not suffered completely yet, Paul said. That's a hard one to swallow. And that means physical sufferings, it means spiritual sufferings, mental sufferings. Oh, we go through a lot of things. The tribulation, the anguish, the agony of this life sometimes. It's hard, isn't it? It's a hard life, but it, God is good. Boy, the pain and the agony of death. Peter knew what he said when he said that. How, how much in English words can we put out with what that means? Oh, thank you, Lord, for taking that kind of pain away from me for an eternity. And... Uh, You know, Peter is saying, I didn't make this up. I didn't make this up. None of us disciples made this up. I know a lot of people are thinking that, hey, maybe this could be made up. How do we know? We, the apostles, were there. We were there at the spot. We wrote about it. We wrote about what we saw, what we 
uh, heard, what we felt. We were witnesses. An eyewitness tells what they saw, what they heard, what they felt. The Bible doesn't read like a legend. It is set into the context of history. It is historical. The historicity is like no other event ever in history of mankind. How can I even say I know Abraham Lincoln existed? Well, I can just go on historical facts. I never saw him. He wasn't in front of my eyes. How can I know? Because we have historical documents. We don't have any videos of him, do we? But we know he existed. And go back a little further. Everybody can believe that Augustine believed or, or, or that existed. Why do people have a hard time with Jesus being here on the earth? And if they do, then why do they have trouble with Him coming from the dead? Look in Luke 3.1. Luke was a historian. Luke was incredible in his writing. And it's writings like this that brings forth the actual historicity of our Christianity because he was accurate. He named names of people who were living at that time. Now, in the 15th year, look at, look how accurate Luke is, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Was there a Tiberius Caesar in history? Yes, there was. Because it says here in the Bible. But also, if you look at secular history, yes, it was. We don't have any doubts about that. When Pontius Pilate, was there such a Pontius Pilate? Yes, there was. He was governor of Judea. Is that right? Yes, it was. And Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. Was that a fact? Yes, it was. And his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea. He is absolutely correct on every site that he makes here. Trachonitis and Lysanasius was tetrarch of Abilene. And the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God, came to Jesus. John, the son of Zechariah, this is John the Baptist, in the wilderness, and he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Do you see in those first three verses the historicity? He puts it into time and place and matter. People's names are mentioned. He just doesn't throw out something. He says this is during this time and here's when John the Baptist existed. People saw him. They knew he existed. People went out to him by the droves. Christianity, absolute truth. Look in 1 John chapter 1, the first three verses. And you remember back some time ago when we were in 1 John. Hasn't been that long, has it? What was from the beginning... What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, with what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. He said, I want you to know this. I was there. I saw Him. I felt Him. I heard Him. He was really there. There were others. It just wasn't me. He was not some kind of phantom. It was not just some kind of spirit. Paul and Peter, as they talk about the resurrection, did not argue the resurrection. They didn't even bother to argue it. They came out as a matter of fact. We don't have to argue the resurrection. You know what? It's up to those unbelievers to come up with that He didn't resurrect. When something happens and is true and you have it documented, it's up to them, folks. You don't have to argue the resurrection. Just say, as a matter of fact, I believe in Jesus Christ who, here's the Gospel, who was crucified, buried on the third day, rose again. Tell them that. And they say, well, how do you know? I said, we have facts. And we have historical facts 
The historicity is right here. It happened. There were eyewitnesses. And he didn't say it was probable. He didn't say that it was possible. Maybe. It's plausible. It could. It could have happened. No, he had the proof. There was one who saw him as they went to the tomb. And then there were two who saw him. And then there were the, all the rest of the apostles. And then there were 500. Not only is there internal evidence, and that means within the Scripture, there is external evidence. In 112, the very next century, not, what, 70, 80 years afterwards, there was a man by Pliny the Younger who wrote to Trajan, the Roman Empire, how the Christians met to worship on the first day of the week. And by their actions, he was amazed. Josephus was a Jew who never became a Christian who wrote about Jesus in his history book. He had to. He made such an impact. Secular source there. Josephus was. And in some uh, writings of Josephus, uh, there, I think there's good enough evidence to say that he wrote about the resurrection of Christ in a brief way. That's something coming from a Jewish person. He provided evidence. People provided it. There were 17 non-Christian writings giving 50 details including the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. The New Testament, folks, is the best documented of all the ancient writings of any writings ever in the history of mankind. We have the best right here. So many witnesses are mentioned in the New Testament. And they're legitimate. The historicity is of special importance. And by the way, the apostles would not die for a lie. They're not that stupid. Matter of fact, they wouldn't have even told on themselves. They went running away. They left the scene whenever Jesus got arrested, didn't they? And they hid out. It wasn't until Jesus resurrected and started showing to them uh, that He was for real, that they were willing to stand for that. And then if you knew that that happened, how can you keep it a secret? You tell everybody that we have a risen Lord. Hey, tell your family today that. I dare you that when you, when you meet with them today. Any unbelievers and say, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Wow, that's the greatest news. History is the basis of the reality of the resurrection. We're going to move on. We're going to move quick. You ready? That's part one. The results of the res- resurrection are incredible. We go to verse 24 of Acts 2. Acts 2. 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says to him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He's in my right hand. He quotes Scripture now. quotes the Old Testament. There was a battle. It was death against Christ, who is life. Christ won. <laughs> there was no match. I mean... That's a joke for death to even challenge life himself. Death lost, didn't it? He conquered death. And we as Christians have nothing to fear. Perfect love cast out fear. When you recognize the love of Christ who's in you, you don't fear death. We don't need to die. We will not die. We enter right on into eternal life. We've already, we already have, but we will have new bodies. But before that, we will go in and be in the very presence of God till the resurrection. Death couldn't hold Him. 
Death could not hold him in the ground. Right? I'll rise again. 1 Corinthians 15, 17-20. Don't have time to turn there, folks, but if you want to be turning and checking out, we'll, we'll look at it. But it's for us. Death was conquered, and it's for us. The reason that He died was for that reason, for the sinners who had been chosen and called. He had to pay their sins. God's Word is validated. In 25-31, through 31, and we've already read this earlier in the reading, there uh, from 25-28, through 28, Peter just takes out of the Old Testament great passages and says, hey, look at this. He, he quotes David. And he says, David talked about this, that there was going to be a resurrection. The Holy One would not undergo decay. David's not talking about himself here. He's talking about the Holy One. And he was going to resurrect. David talked about the resurrection in the Old Testament. And this is news. It's like news to the apostles. A resurrection. They couldn't couldn't get it. They didn't understand. There are over 1,000 prophecies in the Bible which God made that have come to pass. A.T. Pearson wrote that. That have already come to pass. And they can be verified in history. One thousand, yes. Some of them even name names in secular history and such. My, what have we got to doubt? One thousand prophecies. Do you know of any religion? Do you know of any foreteller that's ever had one thousand predictions right? (laughs) No way. Not even close. Every time a prophecy would come to pass, God's Word is vindicated. It shows that His Word is validated. It's true. And this is precisely what Peter says. So, it's not only for us, but the resurrection is for God, which means it validates what He has said and it comes true. So many passages in the Old Testament. I'm skipping a lot of verses today. But those passages are there. We've taken time before where we've seen the, just the resurrection passages. And of course, you can think about the birth, the death in Psalm 22, for instance. Isaiah 53. But the resurrection also is in Isaiah 53. Christ has been exalted in 32 through 36. It says in 32, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. All of us standing here, as apostles, myself here, you know, as Peter is saying this, we witnessed this. We know He rose from the dead. We saw Him. He was there. And some of you saw it too. 32-36 is for Christ. Christ is exalted. We see that in 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit is poured forth. Uh, in 34, he quotes David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter is just drawing great passages out of the Old Testament that every Jew there that knew exactly what he was talking about. And they're going, oh wow. That's right, that's right. It does say that in there. This is the one. This is the one who did it. This is the one. It's for Christ. He's exalted. Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11, Remember that? We have the humiliation of Christ. And then what do you have? The exaltation of Christ. What's going to happen? 
Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm. With joy, right? So it's for us. It was for the Father. It was for Christ because of His humiliation. He is exalted. And also in verse 33, after He's exalted, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Because of the resurrection, then the Holy Spirit came. You remember Jesus said, I must leave. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, has to come. But He can't come until I die and then resurrect and be gone. Then the Holy Spirit will come. He came 50 days after Passover. He fulfilled the law. Pentecost was the giving of the law. Celebrated the giving of the law back in the day of Moses. And now, at Pentecost, at this first Pentecost, right on that very day, is the fulfilling of the Holy Spirit coming into the church, empowering people like the Holy Spirit had never done before. In a more fulfillment than had ever been. The Holy Spirit was commissioned. In John 7.39, Jesus is saying something about the Holy Spirit. But this, He spoke of the Spirit, living water, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified and been resurrected. The Holy Spirit can't come to and into the church until after the resurrection. So it's for the Holy Spirit. It's for God the Father. It's for God the Son. It's for the Holy Spirit. It's for us. The resurrection is such a huge event. It's the keynote of all time and eternity. That's what we believe in. What's the response? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What are we going to do now? We are convinced. Peter, you gave us the Word. We're convinced that this is true. He was the one who resurrected. It really did happen. You know, Christianity is very rational. I'm not talking about being rationalism, but it's rational. The message so pierced them. It cut right to the heart. It made sense. Christianity makes sense. It's not something that is just uh, latching on to some kind of faith without knowing anything about it. No, it's something that it makes sense to someone. Something has been done on the part of the hearer here. He responds. Uh, on the other side, there are people like Richard Dawkins who wrote The God Delusion. And he passed over reason in one sentence. See? It's either one or the other. can't be in between. Here's what he said. Here's what Richard Dawkins said. Jesus probably existed. Probably. What an idiot. Excuse me, but that's just that's stupid. That means you don't know, you don't know anything here. He did exist. Now, you know, before he even talks about probably existed, but the idea of coming back after he died 
It is absurd. A bestseller, folks. A number one bestseller here in America. And by the way, he said, yeah, Jesus probably existed, but the idea of coming back after he died is absurd. End of story. Just like that. Who are you, Richard Dawkins? Can you back that up? Can you give me the proof? I have all the proof I need. I'm not even going to try to prove it to you. Why even argue it? Yeah. Demons. People. No, there's a God. They suppress it. Gauguin, the artist, was the most famous for a painting of life itself. And on that canvas, he wrote three questions. Actually, wrote something. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Three very important questions. Everybody ought to ask that. He didn't know. And if you don't have the answer, you need a new view of the world, right? <laughs> you can't ignore the truth. The truth is, is there is good. That's God. But there is bad. That's man. Then there is new. There is new life in the person of Jesus Christ because He rose from the dead and we can trust in Him. And then there is the perfect, which is where we're headed. We know where we have come from. We know where we're going. We know who we are. We have been put into Christ. So Christianity is very rational. The whole story is right here. Right in Scripture. And it's empirical. That means, and it kind of goes along with the the rational. It means it's something you can observe. You can experience this. You can experience a new birth. Something where you have head knowledge, but also it comes into the heart and you know, not burning in the bosom, but you know because of the fact of the truth of the Word of God, you know that you are adopted into the family of God. Romans 8 talks about that. Oh, people like Sartre, like a philosopher. Here I am. He, wrote, he, he arrived at this great thinking. Here I am. I get up. I eat. I drink. No reason for existence. I eat. I drink. I exist. But there's no reason. I eat. I drink. Can you imagine getting up in the morning, putting on your clothes, eating, get in the car, you drive, you go to work, you drive back, come home, eat. Next day, you get in the car, drive, work, drive back. Next day, you get up, get in the car, drive to work, you work, you come back. Over and over and over and over. Solomon said, it's vanity. All is vanity. If you don't have the meaning of life, if that's all you're doing, oh my, that's, that's horrible to think about that. Um, no reason for existence. Yes, there is. We exist for the glory of God, don't we? Hemingway, writer Hemingway, said life is a dirty trick. It is a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. That's sad. He entered his life by putting a shotgun to his head. Jesus answers the cry for freedom. 
Because of Christ and His resurrection, we have the hope within us. All that other stuff that's going on out in the world, what does it matter? It's going to be gone. (laughs) It's nothing. It is nothing compared to what we have in the person of Christ who is resurrected and is alive. And so we look at this and we see this response. Now, when they heard this, they weren't like John Paul Sartre. They weren't like Hemingway. They weren't like Confucius and many other people. They said, Brethren, what shall we do then? And what does Peter say? Repent. Turn from your sins. Recognize that He's a holy God. And you are a sinner. Repent. Each of you be baptized. Placed into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And so that's why we keep giving the call out there because there are some who need to hear what we just heard in the last hour. There are some out there that need to hear this. And some of them might say, what should we do? Say, well, there's really nothing you can do but believe in Jesus Christ. It's by faith and repentance that will show that you're a Christian. That is a gift that's granted from God Himself. And uh, I'm going to have a prayer here. And we'll finish off with a couple of songs to show how we are alive.